For some years now, I've made it a practice to preach in a detailed and sustained way um, on the cross. Um, That is the crucifixion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ each Palm Sunday, um, each year. And my prayer for us as we do this, as we meditate deeply today in a sustained way on the death of Jesus today, um, this morning in our sermon and on Friday, on Good Friday, in our worship as we hear uh, directly from the scriptures in a sustained way, is that the Holy Spirit would move among us afresh and anew in such a way that we might experience the glory and the wonder of the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus in a new way. For the cross, friends, is truly inexhaustible in its beauty and in its meaning. We come to it again and again and find new things every time in this glorious story. One of the challenges of meditating on the cross as modern Christians is how normal it may have come to seem for us to have a crucified Savior at the center of our faith. We see a cross and we think nothing of it. But friends, it is not normal for this to be the case. Nothing could be further from the truth that it would be normal for us to have the cross and a crucified man at the center of all that we believe. The remarkable Sri Lankan theologian Vinuth Ramachandra helps us to see the strangeness of the cross in his cinema essay on the crucifixion of Jesus. Ramachandra writes this, he says, From the beginning, the Christian message has been distasteful, even offensive. In the Roman Empire, crucifixion, though widespread, was viewed with universal horror and disgust. It was cruel and degrading. The the victim often flogged and tortured before being strung up on a cross on a busy, crowded junction as a deterrent to the masses. It was the most humiliating form of death in the ancient world. The penalty reserved for rebellious slaves or what would today be called terrorists or enemies against the state. No Roman citizen could ever be crucified. Romans didn't even discuss the subject in polite company. They pretended to be ignorant of its its existence. Crucifixion, Ramachandra goes on to say, was a way of wiping out not only the victim, but also the memory of him. A crucified man had ceased to exist, indeed had never existed. It is in a world such as this that we meet a group of men and women moving around the Roman Empire and announcing that among those forgotten, crucified nobodies, there had been one who was no less than the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Ramachandra writes, he says, I cannot overemphasize the foolishness of such a message. If you wanted to convert the educated and pious people of the empire to your cause, whatever that cause may have been, the worst thing that you could do would be to link that cause to a recently crucified man. 
This message, if true, subverted the world of religion. For it claimed that if you wanted to know what God is like and to learn God's purposes for God's world, you had to go not to the sages, to the philosophers and their lofty speculations, or to the countless religious temples and sacred groves that dotted the empire, but to a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. Beloved, this is exactly what we believe. If you want to know who the living God is and what He is like, if you want to understand the kinds of things that God does, what His character is, you must not go to the sages, nor to the lofty speculations of the philosophers, nor to the countless religious temples in the world or the halls of power, but to a cross, a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. To understand God, you must behold a crucified man. So let us go there again with our eyes as wide open as we can make them. And let us see again as if, for the first time, the true nature of our God, as He is revealed in the crucifixion of His Son, Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is found in Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. I invite you now to listen again to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, This passage is printed for you on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to read along there. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, that is, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thus far, the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true. And it is given to you, friend, because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts would be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight through our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One of the fascinating things about the way in which the gospel writers tell the story of the death of Jesus is that they choose to focus not so much on the physical pain and suffering involved in his crucifixion, as we so often do today, but rather much more on the humiliation, the exposure, the mockery that Jesus experienced as he died. In our passage this morning, Luke summarizes the manner of Jesus' death with one short phrase. In verse 33, he writes, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. They crucified him. That's all that Luke tells us. He does not describe the intense pain of crucifixion. He does not tell us in any detail about what happened to Jesus' body as he hung there on the cross, what it felt like for him to endure that kind of death. Friends, make no mistake, Jesus died in a horrible and painful way. He was tortured to death publicly for hours. That's what crucifixion was. Crucifixion was as physically brutal a way to die as any means humans have ever invented. But that is not the primary focus of any of the gospel writers, including Luke. Instead, what Luke lingers on, what he describes in some detail, is the humiliation the mocking, the taunting from his enemies that Jesus experienced and absorbed as he hung on the cross, naked, defenseless, dying. As Luke tells us, the rulers of Israel, who had plotted for years that this might come to pass, they were there. And they scoffed at Jesus, saying, He saved others. You can hear the sarcasm in their voice. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, His Chosen One. You can hear, right, the vitriol, the the sarcasm. How could the chosen one of God be nailed to a cross? How could it be? And Luke tells us that the Roman soldiers joined in as well, mocking him by bringing him sour wine to drink and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, right, laughing to themselves, what a foolish notion that there could be a king of the Jews. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
knowing that they had been the ones that had driven the nails into his body, that he was trapped on the cross by their power and their authority. This is what happens to someone who claims to be the king of the Jews. Even one of the criminals, Luke tells us, dying on a cross next to him, used the last moments of his life, the last ounces of his strength to join in the reviling of Jesus. As Luke tells us in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged, that is crucified next to him, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's important to notice, friends, that none of these people who mocked Jesus, who taunted him, who shouted and screamed at him as he died, the rulers of Israel, the Roman soldiers, the criminal on the cross, none of them display the slightest hint of repentance or sorrow over what they are doing. No, they are perfectly confident that what they are witnessing as Jesus dies is justice and that they are in the right, that they are justified in mocking this dying man. And they are so confident in their blindness and their self-righteousness that they don't just stand silently and watch with satisfaction. No, they revile and mock Jesus in his nakedness and in his pain as he lies, or as he, as he, as he hangs, rather, dying before them. They laugh at him as he dies. That's what Luke wants us to see. They scorn him as he suffers. And Luke is careful to include it all. He thinks it is crucial for us to see this, for us to understand the horror and violence of this moment. You see, friends, what Luke wants us to see is that the Jewish people, who should have been the most spiritually advanced because they were the chosen people of God, and the Roman government officials who claimed to be the most civilized of all people in the history of the world, that these two great peoples met God and they destroyed Him. They put Him to death. Luke wants us to see clearly in the death of Jesus that this is what the human race is like apart from the grace and mercy of God. For the human race met God in the flesh, and instead of welcoming Him and serving Him, they put Him in chains and held a sham of a trial to justify murdering Him. God came in the flesh and the human race, Luke wants us to see, flogged him and struck him and took him out of the city and crucified him. And they laughed as they did it. Beloved, in this passage, as we read of Jesus' death and the treatment that he experienced from his enemies, we are confronted with the horror of who we actually are left to our own devices in relationship to God. That we are not neutral towards God. No, we would make ourselves 
his enemies. That is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. It is what human beings have been doing the rest of human history outside of the grace of God and the work of His Spirit. They are not neutral towards God. They want to kill Him. All of our false piety, all of our hypocrisy, all of our ignorance and the true violence of our hearts is laid bare by the cross of Jesus. If we do not wrestle with these things, then we are avoiding the weight of what the Spirit intends to do in us through this story, through this text, through this passage. Remember, Peter said on the day of Pentecost to the crowds assembled before him, some of which had only recently arrived in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. He said to them, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And in response to that accusation, that confrontation that comes from the apostolic preaching of the crucified Messiah, we must, like them, be cut to the heart as we look at our own lives and consider who it is we actually are. We must acknowledge, if we are to be honest, that yes, we did it. We participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. As Paul tells us, quoting from Psalm 14 in Romans 3, he says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Thus the Holy Scriptures teach us. And the truth of these words is revealed nowhere more powerfully, more poignantly, more clearly in all of human history than in the cross and the death of Jesus Christ, the innocent Son of God. But, beloved, the cross does not only reveal the horror of our sin and the sin of the whole human race. It also reveals, as nothing else does, the heart of God in response to our hatred of Him, in response to our sin. Remember, early in Jesus' ministry, as we heard already this morning in the Gospel reading, He taught His disciples again and again about how they must treat their enemies in imitation of God. He said to them, Things like, love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. I mean, those are nice words, right? I mean, it must have been, to some extent, what His disciples thought of Him. Oh, that's nice, Jesus, right, of you to say that. But what does that mean, really? To love our enemies and do good to them. It is here at the cross that the teaching of Jesus about the heart of God is adorned 
and confirmed by his own treatment of his actual enemies. Here we learn that Jesus meant every word in the Sermon on the Mount. Every one of them. Remember, as I mentioned before, that Jesus' enemies are totally hard-hearted in this moment. There is not a hint of repentance. They are killing him, and they are laughing about it. But hanging on the cross, Jesus says and prays these remarkable words. He says in response to all the violence, all the hatred, all the mockery, Father, forgive them, he says, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, he says. As he hangs on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Beloved, this is your God who speaks from the cross, who preaches from the cross a sermon of grace. Jesus came as a preacher And he died preaching. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was his sermon, his last sermon before his death. And what he is saying is that humanity, the human race, know that this is your God, this is who your God is. He will endure everything that you throw at Him. All your doubts, all your hatred, all your rebellion, all your secret sins, all your violence, all your hypocrisy, all your ignorance, and He will take it and He will forgive it all. That is what Jesus is communicating to us, friend, to you that this is who your God is. He will take your sin. He will take even your enmity. And He will forgive. As Paul tells us in Romans 5, God shows His love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And friends, do you know what happens in the early chapters of Acts? We read of priests and of Pharisees that are baptized, that realized that Peter was right, that they had crucified the King of glory. And they came with repentance and faith, and they were forgiven. Friends, the heart of God is revealed in nothing so strongly as how He treats His enemies, how He treats those who abuse Him and hate Him. In other words, friends, the heart of God is revealed in this, that He is kind and merciful even to you, beloved. Not just at your best, but especially at your worst. You can know that God is merciful 
and He is gracious, and He forgives. And the darkest places of your soul and the things that you are most ashamed of and the places where your heart is hardest and your rebellion against God is strongest, it is in those places and at those times that Jesus says these words, that He prays for you and says, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. Or, Father, forgive her, for she knows not what she does. Jesus' death and the manner of his death shows us this. We can kill God and mock him while we do it. And God will still Forgive us, even that. That is how wide His love is. That is the depth of His grace. So what does it look like to respond with faith and repentance to the horror of our sin and the extravagance of God's grace that is revealed to us at the cross? What does that look like? Luke tells us when he describes the response of the other criminal to the suffering and humiliation of Jesus. Right at the end of our passage this morning, Luke writes, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, the other criminal, that is, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This man is innocent, he says. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't know, of course, uh, what had happened, what had taken place in this man's life that had led him to be in this situation, to be nailed to a cross outside the city gates of Jerusalem. He was probably a Jew. He was unquestionably a wicked man. Luke refers to him as a criminal, and Matthew and Mark call him a robber. Since he was being crucified, we can be confident that this man wasn't just a, a sort of petty burglar of homes, right? There's lots of petty crime in Jerusalem, and Rome had neither the entrance, interest or the, the resources to crucify every one of those thieves. Now, this is someone who had made himself an enemy of the Roman state, likely the kind of man who set upon and attacked defenseless travelers on the roads that were so crucial to the Roman Empire and its power and its prosperity, as in the situation that Jesus mentions in the parable of the Good Samaritan, thus threatening the free flow of commerce and goods and making himself a threat to the Roman state and liable to its justice. In other words, friends, this man was likely not just 
a robber, but very possibly also a murderer and a rapist. By his own admission, he knows that in being crucified, he is receiving the due reward of his deeds, for he is a violent man. He does not argue with his sentence. To be crucified, he acknowledges, is a fitting result for all the things that he has done. All the sins that he knows he bears, all the crimes he has committed, all the ways he has abused and mistreated others, all the ways he has hardened his heart against God throughout his life. And yet this man... Perhaps he heard, believed that he did hear Jesus' words shortly before, speaking to God, to his Father, about forgiveness. And so this man turns to Jesus moments before his death, and he says simply, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Look at me, this man says. See me in all of my mess, in the manner of my death as I die before you. All my sin which is exposed and on display for all the world to see, for you to see, Jesus. And remember do not forget me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And friends, here is the remarkable thing. Jesus does not flinch. He does not hesitate. He does not pull back. He does not ask the man to prove his sincerity or demonstrate his repentance. No, this, Jesus knows, is the kind of man that the good news of the kingdom of God is for. It is not for those who believe themselves to be righteous, but for those who know that they are sinners and that they desperately need the grace and mercy of God. Jesus welcomes this criminal, this sinner, with open arms, not reluctantly, but because this is what he does. This is who he came for. This is why he dies and will be raised again. And he says, truly, friend, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not only in paradise, that's welcome enough, I'm sure, for this man to hear. But Jesus says, you will be with me. You belong with me in paradise before the presence of Almighty God and His holiness. Jesus welcomes him with open arms and takes him to himself. Friends, this is the good news the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I and you are the foremost. 
We say in the midst of our mess, in the midst of all the wreckage that we've made of our lives, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. I mean, that is the quintessential statement of faith, right? That we cast ourselves into the arms of our king, that we put ourselves on the mercy of Jesus and ask him to remember us, to forget, not forget us, to never let us go. And Jesus, the innocent Son of God, friends, does not turn his face away. He welcomes us with open arms. He forgives our sin. He says these remarkable words, you will be with me in paradise. You belong with me, he says, forever. Friends, I don't know where you are today. Many of you I know, but some I do not. You need to know that today is the day of salvation. That today this offer is extended to you. And I say, friend, put your trust in this crucified man, this Jesus. For he will forgive you no matter what you have done, no matter what your life has been. And he will take you to himself to be with you forever, to with him forever. Indeed, friends, may this be the prayer on all of our lips this day and every day. Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we ask that your Son, Jesus Christ, would remember us. And we thank you for how on the cross he reveals your heart for sinners, for each one of us, for the whole world. We adore you, Father. We give you thanks for your Son. In Christ's name, amen.